0: For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews' a stumbling block and unto the Greeks' foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So far we read in the word of God. May the Lord bless that reading to our hearts this morning. And now, in light of that reading, let's consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 6. Question 16 asks, Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sin should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God, that he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life? Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? Whence knowest thou this from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son, He that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Notice it doesn't say, don't glory. In fact, the original language is, if anything, stronger than what we read in the King James. Boast. 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 We tend to think of boasting as a bad thing, but the Word of God calls us to boast and to glory. In fact, that's how our hearts are wired. That's how we were created, for glorying, for boasting, so that if we don't glory and if we don't boast, we're lacking something important in terms of who and what we are as God's creatures. Glory, Paul says, the Word of God says, boast. Well, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Let him not glory and boast in himself or herself. Let him not glory and boast in his career. Let him not glory or boast in the size of his house or in his family or in the size of his bank account. Let him not glory in the strength of his will to choose this or that for his own benefit or salvation. Let him glory in the Lord. Let him boast in the Lord. Why? Well, we could say because he's worthy. Enough said. But the Bible gives us reasons and the Lord gives us reasons why we should glory in him. And it's because the Lord has given us something that we could never provide for ourselves. He found us walking around in the blindness and foolishness of our minds. He saw us as we were caught up in the web of our own sin and ugliness and its consequences. He looked down on us as we were covered in the dirt and the muck and the filth of our unholy and ugly lives. He noticed us in the depths of our misery. That the Heidelberg Catechism has been teaching us about, and He took mercy on us. And He sent to us a person who would be able to deliver us from all that misery. And then He united us to that person. And that person is Christ Jesus, whom our Lord's Day reveals on the basis of Scripture as that person who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And redemption, a redeemer, a redeemer who is of God, from God, out of God. Therefore, according as it is written, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Call our attention this morning to the instruction of Lord's Day 6 and our theme is a Redeemer who is of God. First, we will identify where He comes from, that is, out of or of God. Secondly, what He is for us, that is, redemption, and also wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And then finally, how we know, that is, from the Holy Gospel. A Redeemer who is of God, First, where He comes from. Secondly, what He is for us. And then finally, how we know. Now, Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. The Word of God proclaims Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He is that person who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But what is redemption and what is a Redeemer? Well, redemption is a word that is often misused in the English language. When a professional boxer loses a big fight that he was supposed to win, undoubtedly he will feel disgraced and ashamed. And then he's going to hit it hard and he's going to train until he enters into the ring once again and faces that opponent one more time And if he wins the rematch, people will excitedly say, and the sports announcers will excitedly proclaim that this was a story of redemption. The disgraced man has been redeemed. But that's not redemption, that's a comeback. Redemption assumes that a person has no power. Redemption assumes that a person has no standing, no ability to get back the thing that was lost. The person who needs to be redeemed is a person who can't train really hard or learn new skills in order to find redemption because this person is a slave. He is under the legal power of a master with no means to buy his way back out of that legal power. In the Old Testament, a man became a slave when he was so in debt that he could not pay it off. So he would sell the land of his inheritance, which was his place in the promised land, and if selling part of his land or all of his land didn't cover his debt, he would even sell himself to be a servant, a laborer, and if that didn't cover it, he might even have to sell his family. Redemption, then, is when a payment is made to release such a person from this legal bondage. There was a law in the book of Leviticus ensuring that such a redemption payment must be accepted. A man who bought out his Israelite brother's land could not refuse to accept a redemption fee if that redemption fee was brought to him, Leviticus 25, verse 24, God says... Well, first in verse 23, God says, "...the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me." So every parcel of land that the Israelites lived on wasn't really theirs. It was God's. God gave it to them. They're not supposed to sell it at all. But if they do sell it, here's a provision that's made. Verse 24, "...and in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land." If thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. The redemption is the payment of a fee to restore back that which was lost. The redeemer, then, is the person who makes that payment. Now, in the Old Testament, it was technically allowed to pay your own redemption fee. Goes on to say that in Leviticus 25, verse 26. And if the man have none to redeem it and himself, that is, if he have none, no person to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. So technically, you are allowed to pay your own redemption fee but the reality of the case is that normally this would be next to impossible to accomplish. How is a man who is so in debt that he had to sell his own land, maybe even sell himself and his family into slavery, how is a man like that going to come up with enough money, enough means and wherewithal to buy himself out of bondage and regain his possession? That's an impossible situation. Especially if you do have a fellow Israelite who's not playing things by the book and wants to keep this person in his service, in his debt, and wants to continue farming this land and doesn't want to pay the redemption. So God made sure that a family member, a near kinsman, had the right to pay the redemption fee for his brother in his behalf. So you know the story of Ruth. Well, Boaz in the story of Ruth is the one who fulfilled the role of the kinsman-redeemer for Ruth and for the house of Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. Boaz paid the redemption fee, and thereby he attained the right to marry Ruth, the widow of Malon, and also to farm the land of Elimelech. But he did all of this not in behalf of himself, as if this possession now became his possession, but he did it in behalf of of the family of Elimelech because Elimelech could not do this anymore. And Malon and Chilion, his sons, could not do this anymore because they were dead. So Boaz played the part of the Redeemer and paid the fee in their behalf. So to sum up, a redemption is a payment that releases one from bondage to debt. And a Redeemer is a man who makes that payment in behalf of his powerless brother or sister. Now all of this was written into the Old Testament law for a reason. And the reason was not just to help out the poor Israelites who fell into trouble on account of the debts they could not repay. The reason God wanted this concept of redemption to be written into his law was to embed this idea into the everyday life of the covenant people of God. They were living in a time and in a place where slaves and servants basically were treated like animals or like disposable property. To prove that, just remember how the Israelites were treated in the land of Egypt. They were worked like dogs, their sons were thrown to the crocodiles in the Nile River. They had no worth, no value in the eyes of the Egyptians. Well, in such a place, Israel was to be a nation where slaves could be redeemed and restored back to dignity and life. God wanted to embed this concept of redemption into the life of the covenant people. And God wanted His people to have this concept in their vocabulary as a way of thinking because He wanted them to know that the Messiah who was coming would function as a redeemer. And he wants us to know that as well. The Heidelberg Catechism has been doing a wonderful job giving to us the knowledge of our misery. In Lord's Day's 2 and 3 and 4 and even in 5, we are miserable And our misery is that we are the slaves of sin and in bondage to the guilt of sin on account of our first father Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. We owe a debt we can never repay, and the debt which we owe is the eternal weight of the holy wrath and justice of Almighty God. Justice must be satisfied. Wrath must be poured out. Can we redeem ourselves? Can we make this payment? Well, no, we saw that last week. This is where man must cease. Well, is there a person who is able to redeem us from this debt and set us free from this bondage? Yes, there is. There is a person who matches all of the qualifications to serve as our Redeemer. But who? Who is this person? Ah, the Catechism has been chomping at the bit. The Catechism has been holding back, but leading us to this point, and it can't wait to give us this answer. This is what it's been driving at. Ever since Lord's Day 2 introduced us to the fact that we are miserable, wretched sinners, who is this person who is able to redeem and deliver us? Question 18. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here is your Redeemer, Our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the Redeemer who is of God. Out of God. Because He is of God, Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to carry out the work of redemption. Because He is of God, Jesus Christ comes to us out of the wisdom of God. Now we could say a lot about the wisdom of God abstractly this morning. The wisdom of God is His ability to see all things and to know all things and to know how all things relate to one another and then seeing all things and knowing all things and knowing how all things relate to one another to work all things together so that they bring about the highest possible good. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is deep and profound. It is a wisdom that may look like foolishness to the world, but is in fact wiser than all of the wisdom of men. But if we were to make the wisdom of God concrete instead of speaking of it abstractly, we would say that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And Jesus Christ comes to us out of the wisdom of God to serve as our Redeemer. You see, God knows and understands Himself And he knows and understands himself better even than you and I, far better than you or I. And he is very aware of his need for justice. And he is very conscious of the fact that he cannot simply overlook our sins that we have committed, but that satisfaction must be made, and that it must be a satisfaction that truly Answers and covers the offense. It must be a satisfaction that is made by a real human person who can therefore stand in for and represent the people who have offended against His Majesty. But it must be a satisfaction also that truly satisfies, as in that it truly and fully bears the eternal weight of God and His wrath. Now, man have, men have been pondering over this for many years atonement, and how we can be right with God, and how the cross of Jesus Christ functions to make us right with God. And it's still a mystery to us. But the wisdom of God knew all of this from before the beginning of the world. He knew Christ. And he knew Christ as Redeemer, the Redeemer of his people from before the beginning of the world, which is why the Apostle calls Christ the wisdom of God. In verse 24 of that chapter that we read, this was the wisdom of God, that he would send a Redeemer who perfectly matches the qualifications that are necessary to accomplish a redemption from sin and guilt He is the Redeemer who is of God, and therefore He is out of the wisdom of God. And also, He is the Redeemer who comes out of the righteousness of God. People like to complain about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is scary. The righteousness of God is intimidating, and it's intimidating especially to sinners like you and me. That's why when Israel stood before Mount Sinai and God came down in the thunder and the lightning and the smoke, the people wanted to hide behind Moses. Moses, you go up there and talk to God. We'll stay over here. But beloved, we need to thank God every day that God is righteous. And we must not be afraid of that. We must not think of that as something ugly or unfortunate Thank God every day that He's righteous because if God was not righteous, there would be no Redeemer and there would be no redemption. Our Redeemer comes to us not in spite of the righteousness of God. Our Redeemer comes to us out of the righteousness of God. He comes to us to satisfy the righteousness of God and to make a true and lasting peace between us and God. He comes to us in fulfillment of the righteousness of God. God made a promise to his people to send a redeemer, a redeemer who would make a lasting atonement for his people and God would be unrighteous if he did not keep that promise. He stakes his own name and his own honor and his own righteousness on this promise. But God is righteous. And so out of his righteousness he sends to us Jesus Christ who of God has made unto us a redeemer. And this redeemer comes to us out of God's holiness. We think of the holiness of God like a flaming, consuming, infernal of fire. He is holy and therefore He is pure, of pure eyes than to behold evil and there is no sin in Him. He is holy and therefore He always lives in such a way that He is above reproach and nobody can bring any accusation against Him. And again, this is a concept that can intimidate us. And there's something to that. There is a sense in which we ought to be intimidated or filled with awe and fear when looking at the holiness of God, because the holiness of God exposes our own lack of holiness, our own impurities, our reproach. But the holiness of God is more than just His purity. The holiness of God is what sets Him apart. It's what makes God unlike any other being who has ever been and who ever will be. The holiness of God is what makes us say when we look at Him, who is like this God? Who is like Him? And the answer is, there is no one. There is nobody like Him. Nobody who burns like Him against sin. Nobody who is so exalted as Him. And also, there is no one except for Him, that is, except for God, who is able and willing to redeem sinners like us. There's nobody like that. Nobody else. Again, people like to complain about the holiness of God. Or maybe they're turned off by the holiness of God. But we need to thank God every day that He's holy, beloved. Thank God every day that you have a holy God. For out of the holiness of God, there comes to us a Redeemer, to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And then, beloved, if we were to tie all of this together, we would say that this Redeemer comes to us out of the love and the mercy of God. The Catechism has never denied that God is loving and that God is merciful. The Catechism denied that this love and mercy cancels out His justice and His righteousness and His holiness. No, that's not true. As the psalmist says, mercy and truth have kissed each other, righteousness and peace have embraced. God is loving and merciful, but his love and his mercy are so bound up with his wisdom and his holiness and his righteousness that out of his wisdom and out of his righteousness and out of his holiness and out of his love and out of his mercy comes Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. A person who is willing and able to redeem us. That's what the love of God produces for us, beloved. A Redeemer. A Divine Son who is willing to condescend into human flesh. And to say of you, and to say of me, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. I'm one with them, and they are one with me. And our life is together, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is what the love of God produces for us, beloved. A Redeemer, a person who is able and willing to sustain in his flesh, in his bone, in his blood, in his body, the eternal and everlasting wrath of God against our sins, so as to satisfy God's justice, to sustain it. Do you ever think about what that means? To sustain it. We say the wrath of God, like God himself, is everlasting, it's infinite, it knows no bounds, it cannot be contained, and yet in the body of Jesus Christ, in the power that he has as the everlasting Son of God, He sustained that burden. If you can put the wrath of God in a cup, God's wrath, not just against one little sin, but against every sin that you committed over all of your life, and against all the sins of all of God's people, if you could put that in a cup, He drank it down to the dregs, it was gone. He sustained it. We could never procure such a thing for ourselves. There are many who try, and they go on laboring and laboring and laboring. And one day they will be made to drink their own cup. And they will go on drinking and drinking and drinking that cup. But they'll never get to the bottom of it. But Jesus Christ sustained it and said it is finished. Of God, there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has made unto us wisdom wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. As our Redeemer then, Jesus Christ is for us a release from the power and bondage of sin. Which is to say, He makes a payment for us. He makes a payment for us. He doesn't, first of all, give us the ability to fight against our sin or to become better people. That's often our default way of thinking about this. We commit a sin. We feel the guilt and the shame of that sin. Then we think, well, I need to try harder. Next time, I won't do that. And I need Jesus and the Spirit and grace to help me not do that anymore. And we think of ourselves like that boxer who has been disgraced in the ring. And we feel embarrassed. We feel ashamed. And so we need to work real hard. We need to train real hard. Next time we're going to do better. We need maybe the spirit to come along our, alongside of us and, and act like a, a trainer and a, a nutrition expert. Somebody who's going to help us get better, do better. And then when we get back in the ring next time, we're going to win the fight. And that will be our redemption. But that's not Protestant. That's not Reformed. It's not biblical. What that is is Roman Catholic. That's what our flesh finds most natural. And what is the effect? Well, if there is any sort of change in our life, we glory in ourselves. We boast in our abilities. That boxer who wins the match isn't thinking about what a great trainer he had, or what what a great help that trainer was to him, or how important those nutrition supplements were. He's thinking how great he is. And he's boasting in himself, boasting in his own sheer determination. His own power of will to press on and press through and to secure a victory. That's not what Jesus Christ does for us. What Jesus Christ does for us as our Redeemer is He makes a payment. The fact, the very fact that we need redemption assumes that we are far past making our way back through sheer determination or force of personality and will The very fact that we need redemption assumes that we are slaves. What we have in fact seen in the catechism is that we are slaves who are bound to sin and to death itself, cursed, depraved. The only thing that can set us free is if the toll is paid, the fee is paid, a fee that must be paid into the open mouth of the grave in hell. And of course, everything that goes into that open mouth of the grave in hell never comes out. It's destroyed. It's consumed. But as our Redeemer, Jesus Christ makes, made that payment. He made it in full in order to release us from the power of death and hell. Notice the way the text puts it in verse 30. It's not just that He is the Redeemer who paid the redemption fee. But what it says is that Jesus Christ is made unto us redemption. He's not just made unto us a Redeemer, that's true, but He's made unto us redemption. He is Himself the redemption. He is Himself the payment in His own body, which was broken on the cross, and in His own blood, which was shed. He didn't redeem us by paying silver and gold or by offering other items of earthly property for the payment like the Israelites would have done in the Old Testament. No, He redeemed us by laying down His life. He redeemed us by giving everything in order to release us. He Himself is the redemption. You must remember this, beloved, when you find yourself laboring and laboring and laboring laboring under the weight of the guilt and the bondage of sin, which is sometimes our experience. Our instinct says, well, I got myself into this and I can get myself out. Maybe I need a little help. Maybe I need a little grace, like a steroid shot, so that I can fight my way out and be strong enough. But I'll do it. I'll I'll just try harder. I'll make my way out. I'll redeem myself. And what the gospel and what the Word of God is at pains to teach us is no, you won't. You won't. If you try to go that way, you're going to be left there as a heaping mess of guilt and shame and hopelessness. And after a whole life of trying and trying and trying, You're going to perish. You're going to be lost in the emptiness of the grave which is never satisfied. That's the end for everyone who says I will redeem myself and I will boast in my own labors. The end is failure. The end is destruction and death. No, beloved, What you must believe is a payment has been made. A payment has been made to cover your sins. Or to put it another way, the fight has already been fought and it's been won, and not by you. It was by Him. Believe that. Believe that. And find in it the answer to all of your fears and all of your shame and all of your guilt. Of God, Jesus Christ is made unto us. Redemption of God and in Jesus Christ, satisfaction has been made once and for all for my sins. That's the truth. Then, And only then when we believe that first can we start to talk about what is restored to those who are redeemed. And there is a restoration. As our Redeemer Jesus Christ restores to us and renews to us life. The life that God created us to live. The life that God blesses. The life that we will go on living into everlasting life and that we begin living, if only in a small way, today. Christ has not only made unto us redemption, some people want to put a period right there. Christ has made unto us redemption, period, end of story, don't tell me anything else. But that's only part of what Jesus Christ is for us as our Redeemer. It's the first part, yes. It's the part without which nothing else could follow. But it's not all. It cannot be all. Because redemption has to mean something. There have to be consequences that follow from it. Consequences in the positive sense. Imagine if an Israelite man went and paid the redemption fee for his enslaved brother in the Old Testament, but the man to whom he was enslaved just kept on working him to the bone and kept that man and his family in chains and kept profiting from that inheritance that has now been redeemed. Well, you would say, and any Israelite living at that time would say, that's not right. That's not fair. That's unjust. You have to let him go. You have to restore to him, restore to him that thing which was lost on account of his debt. So you see Christ is made unto us more than redemption. He is also made unto us wisdom. He comes to us out of the wisdom of God. And coming to us out of the wisdom of God, he also gives us wisdom. Wisdom. In our brains. In our hearts. Wisdom. So that even the weak and the foolish of this world and even little children can peer into eternal mysteries and understand them. Maybe not fathom them. Maybe not plumb the depths of them. But understand them. The philosophers and the experts of this world are blind to the wisdom that is hidden in God, but those who are redeemed are given wisdom from the Spirit so that they know and they search out in the Spirit even the deep things of God and have understanding of these things and know them with the simplicity of a little child. Beloved, are you a redeemed son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ then you have wisdom you have wisdom it's a gift of the Holy Spirit to you and you have more wisdom a greater wisdom a more significant wisdom than any wisdom that is held by the Elon Musks or the Bill Gates or the the experts and the wise men of this world you have the wisdom of God live in that wisdom Use that wisdom. Apply that wisdom in your life. And Jesus Christ has made unto us righteousness. Now that includes imputed righteousness. There is a righteousness that is granted to us by God even though it doesn't really reflect the things that we have actually said and done. And we need that imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is granted to us freely, that comes from outside of us and is accorded to our account by God because if we don't have that imputed righteousness, we cannot have redemption. That imputed righteousness is the groundwork of our justification. But when verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 says that Christ has made unto us righteousness, it doesn't only mean imputed righteousness. It also means actual righteousness. It means that we do good works. And if they are good works, then there is righteousness in those works, at least a beginning of righteousness, a hint of righteousness, but it's there, it is. Not that we base our redemption on those works, we've already gone over that, otherwise we'd be back to square one. Nevertheless, God gives us this privilege through Jesus Christ that we do righteous works. We think righteous thoughts. We have righteous desires and we say righteous words and we're called to live in righteousness. Righteousness is restored to us through Christ as those who are redeemed by Christ And he's made unto us sanctification. He comes to us out of the holiness of God, but he comes to us out of the holiness of God to make us holy. In other words, it's not just that we do good works that can be said to conform to the law of God and to be aimed at the glory of God or to be righteous. But we do those good works out of a sense of total consecration and devotion to this God. In other words, our nature itself is changed into something else. It's healed. It's risen from the dead. That which before was dead, He quickens and makes alive. And out of this new nature that Jesus Christ restores in us by the Spirit, there comes a new life, new thoughts, new words, new actions, a delight in the things of God, and a glorying and a boasting, In this God who has redeemed us. Or to sum it all up, you could just say that our Redeemer restores in us the image of God, which now takes on the specific character of the image of Jesus Christ. You remember what the, knowledge, what, the wisdom, what the image of God is. True knowledge of God. Or we could say wisdom. Righteousness and holiness. Or we could say sanctification. All restored to us through the redemption, payment that Christ made on the cross. And if we don't have those things, beloved, then there is no redemption. Because this is the fruit of that work of Jesus Christ. This is what he has made unto us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now how we know all of this, it's a pretty important question. We're talking here about an act of God. God. An act of God that took place in real time, in real history. We're not just talking here about a feeling. We're not just talking here about an experience. We're not just talking here about a new way of looking at things. That may be how other religions function. That may be how the self-help guides of our society function. But the gospel of redemption doesn't function that way. We're talking about something that's not merely subjective, something that only has to do with me, myself, and I and my inner life. We're talking about something that happened, first of all, outside of our minds, outside of our bodies, outside of our soul, even outside of the time and space in which we inhabit. Something happened in the real world of dirt and flesh and blood. And we need to know about that. We need to know about it. We need to be given the information and the evidence so that we can scrutinize it and so that we can study it and so that we can understand it and believe it. Otherwise, we'll go on in ignorance. Maybe we'll be the beneficiaries of this redemption or maybe not, but it won't have any effect on us in this life if we don't know about it. So, how do we know? Well, the answer is from the Holy Gospel. That's how God has always made redemption and the Redeemer known. Even before the Redeemer was sent into this world, even before the Redeemer could be seen in the flesh and blood lives of men here below, God was standing there in the Garden of Eden promising that a seed would be born who would crush the head of the serpent and who would set his people free. And then all through the ages of the Old Testament, First, to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And then also through the prophets. God was proclaiming redemption. He was proclaiming the gospel. And that word, proclaim, is a key word. That's what the gospel is it's a proclamation, it's a declaration. It's a proclamation and a declaration that comes along with a call, a call to repent, a call to believe what the gospel says. But the gospel itself, in its essence, is just that. It is that declaration, that proclamation. It's a word that comes out of the context of battle and warfare in the ancient world. When an army would march off to fight an invading enemy force, the people in the city would just be sitting there waiting for news. What happened? What happened? What happened to the army? Did they get obliterated? Is there going to be an enemy invading force coming that's going to come and sack our city? What, what happened? They're left there in ignorance. But then, if the watchmen on the walls look out and they see a man, a runner coming, a herald, and the herald comes and he proclaims news, news, but it is specifically good news. Victory has been achieved. The enemy has been defeated. You are free. Free from this fear. Free from this crushing weight of fear that has been on your souls. That's a gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that victory has been achieved over sin and death and hell. And that gospel is what is being proclaimed to you this morning, beloved. Beloved. Right now, here today, in this room. To the men of this world, what we're doing here is utter foolishness. And they mock. And they say, What does a man who died on a cross 2,000 years ago, if he even existed, have anything to do with us? Nevertheless, this is the authoritative word of God to you who believe. To you who are willing to be fools in the eyes of the world, you have a Redeemer. And you have redemption. Redemption that comes out of God Himself. Redemption that has been accomplished definitively, once for all, in time and space, in a place called Palestine, about 2,000 years ago, when a man named Jesus Christ was crucified and died on a cross. But it wasn't just any execution that took place. It wasn't anything summary or basic. It was the Son of God Himself come into this world, born of a virgin who died on a cross to make a payment for the sins of His people, for your sins, beloved. Believe. Believe in this Redeemer, Believe that this redemption has been accomplished for you. Lay hold upon him and live then in the freedom, the freedom of the gospel. Live in wisdom. Live in the righteousness and holiness that is given to everyone who believes in this Redeemer. And glory. Glory and boast. But let him who glories, glory not in himself, but glory in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for this gift that comes to us out of the deep of eternity. A gift that was realized in the time and history of this world in the shedding of blood, in the breaking of a a real body, of a real man, who was no mere man, but was Thy Son, and our Redeemer, and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that Thou strengthen our faith, that Thou work in us repentance of sin, and a turning from sin, that we may believe the gospel of redemption, and that we may live in wisdom, and righteousness and holiness as those who have been redeemed. Send us away from Thy house now with Thy blessing and glorify Thyself, O oh Father, in our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray.